Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Be careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. As you, be filled with the Spirit as you sing songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, and giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, dear Jesus, I pray in your name to the Father, thank you for that gift, because we certainly do live in evil times. Evil times is nothing new, Father. They've been there, um, well, since Adam and Eve decided to disobey, and we are engulfed in a sin-sick world. Lord, it affects all our relationships. It affects government. Um, it, it, it creates just evil that is sometimes so hard to comprehend that we, we struggle with your sovereignty. Help us to grasp again your absolute authority over all things. Help us to understand so that we would not be foolish. And Lord, I thank you that as family we gather together in one voice and we sing your praises and we give thanks. For there is much to be thankful for, especially in this land and in this city and in this church. And for all of that, I give thanks and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at marriage rescued from the curse. Now, it's very possible that, uh, well, it's not possible. I know there are a number of single people here, and they might be thinking, okay, time for me to tune out because I'm not married. Uh, my prayer is that you'll be able to discern where many of these truths about marriage can spill over and help within the relationship between men and women. Personally, I call this sermon the angry sermon. And you might be wondering, well, why do you think it's an angry sermon, Scott? Well, because I'm going to say some things that are going to make some of you angry. And I'm not going to say some things that's going to make others of you angry. And then I'm angry because I spent a ton of money on books reading about all the various sides of this issue. Uh, And I regret it. The stack of books I had on the, the argument around this, I gave away a long time ago. This is meant, this text is meant to be a simple half hour sermon. Unfortunately, it's turned into uh, what could be a month-long or two-month-long sermon series in order to dig through everything and try and get across a simple truth. We're not going to be here for six weeks on this sermon. I'm probably going to be 35, maybe 40 minutes as we deal with this. And you might be wondering, what's all the big fuss? Well, it has to do with two competing groups that, oh, three, four decades ago. It started, um, well, simply because men... Uh, in the church for several millennium, haven't gotten this passage very well. When we have, it's been the exception rather than the rule, and as a result, well, women finally had enough, and I can't blame them. In fact, I almost wonder what took you so long to get to that, and what came up was a a school of thought called egalitarianism. I should back up a minute. Anytime you see the word ism behind any kind of uh, ideology or belief, as a believer, you should, well, see a big red flag. So we've got egalitarianism on one hand, 
And this is, there's a wide spectrum within this, this uh, way of thinking, this theology, from what I would call fairly conservative uh, and honest attempts to um, fully comprehend the text to radical feminism that just wants to carry on an ideology of their own. Well, there were many in the conservative side of evangelicalism that saw only this horde of feminisms, feminists like Attila the Hun attacking the church and wanting to undermine biblical truth. So then we ended up with another camp rising up, and these are complementarianism. Uh, and, and they both adhere to the same thing. Let me just give you a brief definition of egalitarianism within Christianity. It's a movement based on the theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, however, there is no gender-based limitations on their functions and roles within the home, the church, or in society in general. To, To take that stand, though, you have to pull out a theological shoehorn to make certain texts fit a certain way into society or to fit culture into the text. Or you have to go through theological gymnastics in order to, well, to get your point across. And the minute you do either one of those, you're, you're deviating from the truth of Scripture, I believe. Well, complementarians uh, have the same problem or a similar problem. It's a theological view that although men and women are created equal, yes, yes, we agree to that, or they agree to that, they're equal in, in being and personhood. They are, however, created to complement each other via different roles and responsibilities as they manifest themselves in marriage and family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. However, in the application of that, because it's in a defense against this feminist horde, I think they miss the point and they hammer home again and again and again. Women must submit. Men have authority. This is the way it is. Yes, we're all equal, but hey, this is the way it is. And oh, by the way, here's a long list of things that ladies, you shouldn't do. That list goes way beyond what the Bible teaches. So likewise, they hammer this home, and they repeat it over and over again, and we've been, they've been hammering at home for a couple of millennium, and Einstein had something to say about, well, this kind of mentality. He called it insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting something different to happen. I'm hoping that something different might happen this morning. And so let's go ahead and jump into our text for today, Ephesians 5, beginning at chapter 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives 
as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his wife, or excuse me, leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also, also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I'm going to back up a little bit to Genesis, to where this whole marriage thing began. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And God has something very specific to say about marriage. <clears throat> we read then in verse 18 of Genesis 2 that the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. <coughs> I will make him a helper fit for him. That's the key phrase, a helper fit for him. God is declaring something's missing. Something needs to be changed, and that is Adam, that man needs a helper. The Hebrew word for helper, well, it is not demeaning in any way, shape, or form. It points to the fact that a husband needs and depends on a wife's support and help. Unfortunately, the word helper is corrupted in our day and age. It's seen, well, a helper is non-essential. When I started uh, my trade in the body shop, I started as a painter's helper. And I went and picked up the the, the bacon and egg sandwiches uh, at break time, and I drove customers back and forth, and I cleaned up the shop and did the the odds and ends here and there. I was a non-essential. That's not the idea of helper here. In fact, there is one translation that I think gets at the heart of what God is is seeing here and wanting to establish, and it's a partnership. So we could read verse uh, the verse here is that it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. God is establishing a partnership in this marriage union. Now let me go back to Paul again. Because elsewhere, when he writes to the Corinthians, he does say that man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. He's making it very, very clear that there are distinctions that are based on biological sex for male and female. So we are partners, yes, absolutely, but there are also distinct differences between those sexes. This absolutely, positively, in no way hints that men are superior to women. God made woman as a partner, to be a partner with man. The picture that we have here is that of a woman being the missing part of a man. Just as a jigsaw puzzle is incomplete, uh, if half the pieces are missing, so a man is incomplete without his wife. God designed it. He designed it so that man needs a woman and a woman needs a man. That's the, the gist of 1 Corinthians 11.11. 11. Both are equal persons sharing many, many roles, yet there are some distinct roles 
that, that need to be carried out to fulfill this partnership. And this is where you're single. You might be thinking, okay, so I'm incomplete unless I have a spouse. No, absolutely not. That's not what is being taught here. Paul teaches something else about being single. So please, just if you thought that, erase it, get rid of it. It's not part of it. But he is talking about partnership. And he all, uh, the, the, uh, the Bible also provides a little bit of application for this partnership. And we go back to Genesis, to chapter 1, verse 28, where God says to man and woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God is pronouncing a blessing on man and woman here. But he's also delegating a responsibility to this partnership. The blessing is being able to share in God's creative process. And the human partnership is commended or, or commanded to be fruitful. That's usually assumed to be, okay, that means you need to procreate. Yes, you need to procreate. But the Hebrew word is a little bit more expansive than that. It means to procreate and be productive. Work together, get work done, get things done. <laughs> work for God in his kingdom. So we're to be fruitful. And when we are fruitful as a partnership, well, we then fill the earth and we subdue it or have dominion over it. Now, there's a number of different partnerships within the Bible. If you were to kind of pull the storyline throughout all of Scripture, you would find that there are limited partnerships. We see it in Paul and Ananias right after the road to Damascus. You see it, well, with Four Como, a limited partnership of churches coming together to work together for one day. There's also growing partnerships. Paul had this with a number of the churches that he planted and went back to. Uh, he had it with Timothy. It was a growing partnership. But there are also deep partnerships, and marriage is one of those partnerships. And so let me just provide a little checklist of, uh, of what, what it is that compiles the elements of, one of, the, of the deep partnership of marriage. First off, a deep partnership is... Well, it, it's a place of free and open exchange of, of your spiritual gifts and your talents and your skills. A deep partnership is where transparency and risk-taking on both sides take place. Risk-taking in regards to motives, money, and potentially touchy personal issues. This is primarily where trust is built within a marriage. Prayer is absolutely positively essential for a deep partnership. Frequent, passionate communication is also essential. That whole idea of becoming one, it's not just getting naked and having sex. It's a whole lot more than that. It is a lifelong relationship of passionate communication uh, over anything and everything that you share with your spouse. A deep partnership is where you have commonly held passions, aims, and goals. It's where you suffer together and you suffer with one another and for one another. It's where time is spent together repeatedly and substantially. There had been a, a school of thought before half of you were even born that what you really just needed was quality time with your spouse. And it even spilled over quality times with your kids. Well, that proved to be a big fallacy for quality time, there needs to be quantity time. And then probably most important, the kind of the frosting on the cake here, if you will, uh, deep partnerships result in, well, a mutual advance of the kingdom of God and the gospel. 
That's what your marriage is ultimately meant to do. But within this partnership, we have to look a couple, at a couple of ugly words. And the first is the S word, submit. The biblical viewpoint on submission is diametrically opposed to that of the world. And I believe wholeheartedly that in order to follow God and his word on this subject, we need to be able to consciously throw off this worldly mindset and decisively submit to the plain teaching of God's word. Submission is a biblical mindset or an attitude that I'll argue is fundamentally un-American. The the American mindset is assert yourself, fight for your rights. It's all about the individual. Well, God's way is completely different. He says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ or reverence, out of reverence for Christ. So as God's people, we submit ourselves to his word as the final authority in our lives in all cases so that we cannot be conformed to the world. So we won't be conformed to the world. Now, verse 21, we, have, we haven't even gotten very far in this text, but verse 21 has three interpretations to it that, that affect how you see the rest of the text. The first view takes it as an overarching, controlling um, uh, principle of mutual submission that essentially just wipes away and, and erases um, any, well, any hierarchical distinctions in the roles that men and women have. Anything that has to do with gender, whether it's in the home or in the church. Coupled tightly with this is the appeal to, well, that's what what Paul is saying in Galatians 3.28 where he writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Here's where we go into theological gymnastics or using the theological shoehorn to make that verse in Galatians as a backup for verse 21. Galatians verse, Paul is specifically and pointedly talking about salvation, that there are no distinctions when it comes to being saved. So that argument, that that viewpoint, that interpretation holds no water. The second one is that verse 21 does not refer to mutual submission across the board or for everyone in the church. Rather, it's just referring to, well, it refers to the wives submitting to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters that are spelled out in the coming verses. I don't think that holds any water either and is a valid interpretation. I believe there is a third interpretation which strikes, I think, at the heart of what God wants where there is this sense of mutual submission in biblical relationships in which we, that's all of us, male, female, young, old, uh, single, or married, which, in which we lay aside our rights and we humbly serve one another in love. In fact, we carry out all the one another's uh, in, in submission to, to, to each other. It doesn't do away with the concept of a hierarchical authority in in various God-ordained spheres. But this I want to make very clear. Verse 21 argues that there is a sense in which even those in authority should submit to those under their authority by not being self-assertive, but by serving in a love partnership. Let me say that again. Verse 21 argues that there is a sense 
in which even those in positions of authority should submit to those under their authority by not being self-assertive, but by serving in a love partnership. A couple of examples. We're going to write for the big one off the bat. Jesus had authority over his disciples. I don't think anyone would deny that. But what did he do in the night when he was betrayed? He tried to give them this, this huge object lesson by washing their feet and telling them to serve one another, to be in submission to one another. He taught also out of Mark 10, verses 42 to 44. He said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And as we'll see in just a a little bit, Husbands do have a responsibility for taking leadership, for taking responsibility in leading the marriage and the family. But that leadership requires that he lay aside all selfishness and any, any authoritarian dominance. Guys, you are not the boss. That's not what God is getting at here. Leading does not mean you are the boss. Instead, Husbands obey our text by sacrificing their lives for their wives as they selflessly seek their wives' highest good. A lot of guys say, well, yeah, I would die for my wife, but you won't take the trash out. You won't help take care of the kids. When I'm a husband, when I as a husband lovingly sacrifice for my wife, I'm submitting I'm in submission. As a father, when I lovingly sacrifice for my children, there is submission taking place. When we assist one another within the church body here, there's a sense of servitude and submission going on there. Thus, it would seem to be that there is a sense in which we are mutually submitting to one another, and we're doing so without abandoning the roles of God-given authority. If I could summarize what Paul is saying here, he's saying that we are filled with the Spirit, and we have to go back into the the rest of Ephesians. Remember, we were dead, but we were saved. That's, That's Christ working through the Spirit to convict us and save us. So we're filled with, the spirit, <clears throat> filled with the Spirit. Believers' relationships should be marked by joyful submission to one another out of fear or out of reverence for Christ. So now we move on to the second ugly word, and that's authority. And this one is, well, there's, I don't know how there could be any de- debate about this one, because there is a, an eternal hierarchical authority within the Trinity. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one essence, equally God in every way, shape, or form, But when it comes to respect of the carrying out of God's plan here in his creation, well, what do we find? The Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Father and to the Son. There's no getting around that. And and then he transfers some of this, this, this hierarchical authority down into his word. And so throughout his word, we find six general areas 
of of authority and submission. First, there is submission to God who is sovereign, absolute, complete authority over all creation. That includes you and me. Secondly, there is submission to government leaders. Then there's submission to church leaders. Fourth, there's submission of of, uh, wives to husbands and children to their parents. Fifth, there is submission of workers to employers. And finally, there is this mutual submission uh, throughout the body of Christ. But wouldn't you know it, that doggone sinful nature that we uh, carry around with us is not inclined towards submission. Even as believers, we have this strong propensity to resist, to push back against any kind of authority, and to assert our independence. So we, whether single, married, young, old, male, female, must first and foremost submit, lock, stock, and barrel, to Jesus Christ as our sovereign Lord. Otherwise, none of this works, and it just becomes an even bigger mess. So let's move on and see what God has to say to wives. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Kind of hard to say that in this day and age. Makes the short hairs on my neck stand up. It kind of catches in my throat as it comes out. But that's it, plain and simple. This verse screams against the cultural mindset of today. But it's also has been and is today continually and significantly abused by men. So let me offer a few comments that I hope kind of enlighten us or help us get through this or approach this verse. First off is the blanket statement. All of God's commands have, uh, uh, well, two purposes. One is to glorify him when we obey. But they're all for our good. I mean, they're coming from an all-wise all-loving, holy God. The commands are for our good and his glory. God is not some cosmic male chauvinist who's punishing women and rewarding men. Again, guys, you're not the boss. He's commanding that they fulfill a specific role within marriage. And and that role is meant that, well, it should reflect his wise and loving care for us. It should be mirrored in that, that marriage. And we need to keep in mind that all Christians, every single one of us that, that call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, are under authority. Husbands are not an authority unto themselves. They are not the boss. They must submit to Christ, and, the, and Scripture teaches, and to church and church elders in the local church, to live in rebellion against this authority is to live in defiance of God. And it's funny how many men I have run into that are all about wives submitting to their authority, but they won't have anything to do with submitting to the authority of the church. To live in rebellion to authority godly authority is to live in defiance of God. Secondly, it just reinforces uh, verse 27 that submission is met ultimately or is met for, meant for the ultimate good of the wife. Uh, thirdly, if you look at the context, verses 18 to 20, it's all about joy and thankfulness, about being filled with the Spirit. Thus, we can take from that that a, a wife's submission to her husband is not a cross that she must bear. 
Rather, it's part and parcel of this joyful relationship, this joyful partnership of love and respect. And fourth, well, God is the one that designed marriage. He designed it to be a powerful, penetrating witness to a selfish world, to be a witness where everyone else is fighting for their rights and to have their own way. This speaks volumes of something different and better. But let me offer a a warning here. You see, when a husband treats his wife poorly and puts her down, and I'm not just—I'm ta- not talking about significant abuse. Um, just just being a, a, a even a, a simple jerk applies here. He's proclaiming heresy. He's proclaiming that Christ, well, he abuses and puts down his bride, the church. If he's a bully over his wife, <clears throat> he tells the world that the gentle, loving Christ is a cruel tyrant. When a man abdic- abdicates his role. Um, and lets his wife assume response, the primary responsibility in the relationship, in this partnership, he preaches that, well, Christ really, he's not the loving shepherd of his church. And really the church is just kind of free to go off on its own willy-nilly and doesn't have to submit to Christ. If a husband deserts his wife, either through unfaithfulness or indifference or by being married to a career or hobbies, he preaches, eh, Christ doesn't care about his church. He'll abandon it too. So as married Christians, our witness to the watching world is very much entwined with how we relate to one another as husbands and wives. Biblical authority is never, ever given, well, it's never given for advantage to the one in authority or so that they can somehow suppress or control those under their authority. Rather, God delegates authority so that, well, the one in authority can be a blessing, create blessing, provide protection for those under their authority so that God and the relationship and, and, and the family unit, well, it can become everything that God wants it to be. Also, we need to remember that the one in authority is accountable to God for those under his authority. This gets a little scary because it doesn't mean here that, well, as most men might think, well, if I'm going to be responsible for it, I want to make all the decisions, and that's not what Paul is getting at here. The husband is not to be the sole decision maker. Remember, we're in a partnership. But he is responsible for all the decisions made, and that gets a little scary in building this partnership. In fact, we see it play out right at the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Eve, well, she falls prey to the con from Satan. She takes a bite of the fruit. But Adam is there the whole time. He has a leadership role he's supposed to provide, and that is to step in and say, whoa, wait a minute, Eve. Don't you remember what God told us? I don't think you should do that. Instead, Adam's silent. He abdicates his responsibility. I don't know, maybe he was thinking, hey, I'm going to see how this plays out. If she dies, like Satan says, well, God will make me a new one. I've got a couple of ribs left. I, I, I really don't think, <clears throat> uh, I, I think just, I don't know, whether Adam was lazy or whatever it is, he did not fulfill his responsibility here. And, well, we're paying the price for that. So whether... <laughs> 
whether we're negligent with our responsibility or we re- abuse or take advantage of our, our advantages as, as leader, well, we, we're going to answer to God. And that should well, keep us humble and always diligent in doing what God wants us to do. So let me try and wrap up where we've been so far in, in just one concise sentence. The biblical submission is an attitude and an action of willingly and wholeheartedly respecting and yielding to the authority of another. And having said that, let me say, go on to, to a word here about to husbands. And we have to back up to the very beginning of chapter 5, verse 2, because there's a blanket statement that Paul lays out here. Uh, Paul tells all believers to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That applies to every Christian. Again, single, married, male, female, young and old. It, it is to be a, a, a ruling dynamic within our lives and our relationships. But there's a specific sense then that Paul applies this when we get to verse 25. He applies the need for Christ-like love pointedly and directly to husbands. Christ-like love should characterize, I believe, each and every husband's relationship to his wife. Which then means that if, well, let's, for example, if I were to be in a men's conference or even go to any church and ask a, a gathered group of men, what do you think your, your, your main responsibility is towards your wife and family? I'd be willing to bet I would hear a lot of, well, to be head of my home. And I would say, yes, that's a very important responsibility, one you should take seriously. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul, very pointedly and with great focus, when he addresses husbands, says literally, husbands, be continually loving your wife or your wives. The husband's number one responsibility in the marriage partnership is to establish and cultivate a loving partnership. That comes first and foremost. That is the influencing factor on your authority. Simple, but not easy, because we learn by example. I had a pretty good example. My mom and dad, I don't think they sat down and said, okay, this is what it means to to be in a marriage, and this is how we carry this all out. But um, I guess just by God's grace, they they pretty well lived this out. So I had a pretty good example. But here's the thing. When I became a believer and I I engaged in the book of Ephesians and I got to this passage, I remember stopping and thinking, okay, what did my parents get right? And I understood what those, those items were. And I said, okay, this is good. I need to do this and more of this with greater intentionality than my parents did so that my kids, my boys, would do it with even greater intentionality than I did. But maybe you didn't have parents like mine. Maybe your dad was a godless jerk. Maybe your mother was just a manipulative shrew. And, and you don't have a... And, and that's the model you have that you bring into your marriage. And it's like, okay, how, how do I get to what God, or get to where God wants me to go in my relationship. Well, if you remember, back in chapter 3, in chapter, chapter 2 and 3, we talked about having been dead in our sins, made alive in Christ, that we can do, uh, well, more than we can even imagine because of the power of the Holy Spirit, which was resurrection power, 
Well, if he's going to do that in our lives, do you think that power is available when it comes to, well, replacing our self-centeredness with sacrificial love and respect? I think that power is there, and it makes this possible. Because I believe falling in love is easy. Sometimes it's almost effortless. But staying in love and growing in love, well, that requires a very deliberate and focused effort. And it's the primary responsibility of men, of husbands, to make this happen, to grow this love partnership. And Paul lays out very clearly a number of steps here. God is telling us what your love should look like within this partnership. And what we see is that God tells us, well, our love should be self-sacrificing. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 25. God tells us that our our love in this partnership should be caring. Just as a man nourishes and cherishes his own flesh as Christ does the church, verse 29. And the next three all come from verses 26 and 27. God tells us that our love in this partnership, well, it must be a commitment. It's implied in the command to love. Uh, and it's it, it, by example of Christ's covenant love for us and by the analogy that he gives of the body. Our love, God tells us, should also be, well, it should show itself. It should be evident to those around us. That is, it's not just words, it's deeds, it's action, it's behavior. I mean, God just didn't say, hey, I love the world that I gave my only begotten son. No, Jesus went to the cross as a, as a public demonstration of that great love. Likewise, we, our love should be evident. And then finally, uh, God says our love in this partnership must seek the highest good of the one loved. Just as Christ died for us, Um, So that he might sanctify us and cleanse us and eventually glorify and make us holy, we are to do that same thing with those that we love within the marriage and family partnership. You see, the main, again, I I reemphasize, the main responsibility for setting a loving climate in the home is on the husband. But many husbands know nothing about the daily practice, about laying aside their rights, laying aside their comfort and their pleasure and their pursuits or their time for the sake of their wives and their children. If you're simply using your wife to meet your own needs, if you don't regard her, uh, her life above your, her needs above your own, if you're demanding your own way, if you aren't cultivating this love partnership that God has established, you aren't loving her sacrificially. You are disobedient. Let me, let me put our, our male disobedience, if you will, in even more concrete terms. If you've ever had the thought, hey, what a, I'm the breadwinner here, and that, that counts for something. I, I've, I've, because I'm the breadwinner, I, really, I, I've, that's why I've got authority. No, 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 no. Just get that, get that thought out of your head. There's nothing biblical there. And then there's the dirty diaper and feeding time syndrome. <clears throat> I, I can't be the only uh, uh, guy that uh, after my wife finished breastfeeding, we went to a bottle that um, I already calculated, okay, mom's antenna to a crying baby is much more sensitive than mine. And when I hear uh, one of our boys cry, I know I only have to wait about five seconds 
before my wife's going to get up and take care of the bottle, and I can go back to sleep. I, some of you laugh, so you've done that too. And the other one is, is you're I don't know, sitting at the table paying the bills, and a uh, little one crawls through the room, or a little bit older maybe runs through the room, and with that comes this certain odor that you realize, hey, it's time to go change the oil or mow the lawn. You're avoiding, and, and these are just simple, I mean, they, you know, kind of uh, cheeky little examples, but I think, I think they speak to a greater issue of sacrificially loving your wife. But where it really gets serious, and that's where men, many too, too many men, they're, they're a leech and they're a mooch off of their wife's faith and her work in ministry. And this becomes really serious. It's where the wife is involved. Bible studies, prayer groups, prayer partners, doing ministry work in the church. And the guy, the husband only shows up church on Sunday. Uh, no, that doesn't, that doesn't fit with what God is teaching here. The guys are supposed to be leading the way in this. And so when people complain that, well, the church is run by women, there's too many women in, in church, we don't get enough men, well, that's not going to happen by hanging a bunch of uh, deer racks around here and, and uh, gun racks above the doors. It by com- becomes by men submitting to God and his authority in their lives and jumping in and leading and being involved in ministry in a partnership with their wives. Well, maybe a little application. I don't know. Is anyone here familiar with um, uh, offshore powerboat racing? I know down at Lake of the Ozarks, they do, uh, they do this every year. Uh, it's a dangerous sport. Um, it, it's fun to watch, but it, it's, it's pretty crazy, fast and furious. Well, it was quite some time ago, someone thought, hey, you know what? Lake Michigan is the perfect spot for this, and Chicago is a perfect place on Lake Michigan to do this because there's lots of money, lots of people, and so we ought to do offshore powerboat racing there. Well... They went to, in a sense, test the waters, if you will, and found out it wasn't going to work at all. And it doesn't work because there are conflicting currents within Lake Michigan that, that create an unstable atmosphere for this boat racing to take place. Now, a lot of what I just covered this morning and a lot of the talk and the teaching around this text has created all these competing currents in our culture and in our church today. So much so that, and, and it had, this is new. This, this is, again, going on since Paul wrote this. It's generally the exception to the rule when a, a man and a woman get this right. Uh, this is just opinion, but I think God knew that that's what was going to happen. And so in this text, he provides, well, a, a life preserver, a, a way to rescue marriage in this text, and it's generally a verse. I, I looked through dozens of sermons just to see how, how this verse was covered, and, and it's usually just kind of an afterthought tucked in at the end of the sermon. But it, 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 it's, it's verse 33 in our text today is, is where the, I think the life preserver is. And I'm going to add to this text just a little bit because I think there needs to be a little bit of groundwork done before we, we get to uh, that particular life preserver. And it starts first and foremost with, and particularly men need to lead the way here, 
is we need to immerse ourselves in the wonder of the cross. You know what? Ladies do too. Let's just make this an equal opportunity event. We need to immerse ourselves in the wonder of the cross. Paul isn't giving out in in this text just some some shallow how-to tips. It's not divorced from sound doctrine. It is the design for a happy, joy-filled marriage. So you need to immerse yourself in the cross. And secondly, I'm going to put men on the spot here. Ladies, how many of you have a husband that prays for you face-to-face, hand-in-hand, knee-to-knee? Like to raise your hands. Not too many. I had a whole lot more first service. So my argument is why? What? is keeping you guys from doing this. To me, if you can't do this, you've got no business saying, hey, I'm the boss, I've got authority, until you can at least do this with your wife. So my, my prayer is that you are so convicted on this that, that starting this week you're going to be looking at, how can I do that? And you might be scared, intimidated, because in all likelihood, your wife is probably the more spiritually, has more spiritual depth in her life than you do if that's the case. And you might say, well, what do I do? How do we do it? That's the wonderful thing. You're already doing it with someone you love and knows you. There's all kinds of grace to go along here. And God wants you to do it. So fumble through it. Work it out. Ask each other, how can I pray for you specifically? And guys, your wife needs to hear the words out loud from your mouth of how much you appreciate her in prayer to give thanks for who she is as your partner. Now, guys need it too, but again, guys lead in that. So this then brings us up to the big life preserver, the, the day-to-day tool that I think builds the kind of relation, marriage relationship that God wants. And it's in verse 33. <clears throat> he, uh, Paul repeats that the husband is to love his wife. But rather than saying that the wife must submit, notice what he does. He says that she, she must respect him. And I think that's the, what, what God realizes, that you're going to get all tangled up in this whole, love, this whole submit and authority thing. So if I can't get you to, to stop with that, I want you to focus on something that's really simple to work on in your relationships. If you need to know more about it, I'm just going to recommend it's a book we probably have in the church library, Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Egerich. Fabulous, fantastic book on how to carry this out. But in simplest terms, what happens is, is if you're a woman and your husband does something where you don't feel loved, where you're hurt by that, you go to your husband and say, you know, when you did thus and so, when you said thus and so, I didn't feel loved. And then you talk about that. The other aspect of it is, is husbands, when your wife says or does something and you feel disrespected, you same thing, you go to her and you say, you know, honey, when you did this or that or didn't do this or that, I felt disrespected. And you talk about it and you pray about it. Now, this is real easy to manipulate because, guys, you could say, well, every time I don't get my way, I'm going to go to her and say, you know what? You didn't respect me when I wanted to buy the new gun, the new boat, and uh, hang out with the guys all the time. That's not what we're getting at here. I think you know that. Because if you're immersed in the cross and you're praying with your wife, this whole love and respect routine will, will do wonders for maintaining and growing your marriage. 
And at the end of the day, you've got a marriage that bears witness to a great and glorious God that gives testimony to the power of the gospel. And not only will you be happier, but you'll raise up another generation that will even do better at marriage than you did. And if you watch children, um, they won't by nature think to do more than you did. So that needs to be part of your leading in this marriage thing, that you can do even better, kids, than mom and I did. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, there's no end to the grace that you pour out for us to deal with and to solve just about, well, not just about, but every and any situation that arises in life. Help us, Lord, when we can't see what your answers are, when we don't understand how to apply your truth. Help us not to get hung up on the, the, the day-to-day culture as it screams uh, things that are contrary to your truth. So, Lord, I pray not just for the marriages that are sitting in this room today. I, I pray for the marriages that are yet to be whether next month, next year, or next decade, that godly men and women would come together and they would remember what mom and dad did. They would remember when they're going through marriage counseling or shortly before the marriage and the the parents say, hey, you can do better than we did, and we're praying you do that. Lord, make this a reality here. Make make the the marriages right here in Compass Church a, a beacon of hope and truth and, and, and glory to you. And I pray for all of this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen.